and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of The Long Show. We're coming to the end of our brief summer season break and we're looking forward to returning to our regularly scheduled broadcast at the beginning of September. But before we do, we wanted to let our listeners in on a fascinating discussion we had with two representatives from the US SEC that shed a lot of light on how the rulemaking process works in the US. Regular listeners to The Long Short will know that over the past year, the SEC has released nearly two dozen rule proposals, many of which came almost simultaneously in spring. The recent released regulatory flexibility agenda indicates there is much more to come. The conversation on rulemaking was with Robert Halauka and Nathan Shaw of the SEC's Division of Investment Management, both of whom are directly involved in the rulemaking process, and Michael Kitson of Bridgewater Associates, who are regularly involved in providing comment and feedback to regulators on rule proposals. The panel was organized and moderated by AMA's own Suzanne Rose, who is a senior advisor for AMA's government and regulatory affairs team in Washington. In this discussion, we hear about how and why new rules are proposed, with particular focus on the impact market participants can have in highlighting potential pitfalls and unintended negative consequences along the way. This includes some advice on how to maximise your chance of affecting change, such as contributing to efforts by industry bodies like AMA, which can help industry participants reach a consensus and marshal very different views and concerns into a coherent message for regulators. This is an incredibly enlightening insight into the minds of the powers that be and is not to be missed. We hope you enjoy it. everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this webinar, SEC Rulemaking, Facts, Fiction, and Why Your Comments Matter. I'm Suzanne Rose, Senior Advisor to the Alternative Investment Management Association, or AMA, and I'm joined today by Robert Haloka and Nathan Schur of the SEC's Division of Investment Management and Michael Kitson of Bridgewater Associates. I'm going to have them introduce themselves before we get started. Robert? Thanks. Um, before I begin, I'll give my introduction in a second, but I just need to provide our standard SEC disclaimer. So on behalf of both Nate and I, I just want to say that both our remarks are our own views and do not necessarily review, reflect the views of the commission or any of our colleagues and the staff of the commission. In addition, I want to note that we're talking about what we've seen in the rulemaking projects that we've worked on, but that each rule is going to be different. These are general anecdotes rather than statements about what, the way things always work. Finally, we aren't referring to any rules we're currently working on. So with that being said, my name is Robert Holoka. I'm a senior counsel in the Investment Advisor Rulemaking Office in the Division of Investment Management. And before joining the SEC, I worked in the private funds group at Kirkland & Ellis in both their New York and DC offices. Thank you, Nate. Uh, thanks. Uh, so I'm also a senior counsel uh, in the rulemaking office at the SEC. 
Uh, prior to joining the SEC, I was also at Kirkland where I was Robert's colleague. Uh, I was uh, in the funds regulatory group there. Uh, prior to joining Kirkland, I was at Davis Polk and I'm a grad of the University of Michigan. Thank you. Hey, Mike. Good morning. I'm Mike Hitson. I'm Bridgewater's Deputy Chief Compliance Officer. I help oversee our compliance program and uh, look out for new regulation uh, on the horizon. So I've been quite busy reading a variety of proposals uh, from the SEC in the last several months. Indeed you have. So as a reminder to attendees, you are free to ask questions throughout the session and we'll get to them as best we can either during or thereafter. So like many of you, I spent years, well, actually decades on the receiving end of regulation that I might personally have disagreed with, but was nonetheless duty bound to enforce. Rules that were made to account for a wide range of business practices, sometimes in a far distant form than they were at present. And they might've been designed to address concerns that weren't even relevant to my specific part of the industry, but you know how it is, the rules are the rules. Beyond explaining what sounded like logic gaps, one of the hardest parts was then having to defend them. I'm not the because I said so type. It doesn't tend to earn much trust and respect. Well, one of the many reasons that I joined AMO was to try to have a voice in the rulemaking process, you know, to tell them all the things that I assumed they didn't know. It's been three years now, and I've had the privilege of working directly with regulators to provide input and feedback during the rulemaking process. And I can humbly admit that I was so wrong in my assumptions, whether about their knowledge or the rulemaking process itself. Equally, it turns out that I always had a voice in the process. I just didn't know how to use it. And I suspect many of you don't either. So a few months back, following the swift successive release of a number of SEC proposals, I approached the SEC about the possibility of doing a webinar and how they go about their rulemaking and why public comments are so important in the process, your voice specifically. And that's what we're gonna speak about today. And who better to do so than members of the very staff that makes the rules, Robert Haloka and Nathan Schur of the SEC's Division of Investment Management. Mike Kitson, as he just explained, of Bridgewater Associates, not only sits on the fund manager compliance front lines, but knows how to view his, use his voice in a way that I didn't. And he actively contributes to many AMA rule comments and discussions with the commission. So let's get started. Nate, could you walk us through how rules come about on a high level? Yeah, so it's hard to provide a comprehensive response because there's just a lot of different options. And frequently there isn't going to be a single point of origin and it's gonna be a combination of several of the things that I'm going to go over. But you know, here are some high level general themes that I've seen in rulemaking. So some of course are gonna be the result of specific statutory direction. You can think of Dodd-Frank when Congress uh, directed us to make uh, rulemaking on a number of topics. And of course, we're gonna follow the law, so we do that. Then I've also seen rulemaking come from leadership where somebody comes in with a specific idea about what they wanna do. Um, alternatively, I've seen staff suggest changes where you know we notice a trend in filings where it doesn't seem like it's working like we want it to, and we suggest some changes. Then sometimes during the public comment process, and you know we're, we're going to talk more about that in a minute, we'll get a comment letter where we think it's a good idea, but for some, for some reason or another, we're not able to address it during the adoption phase of that rule. So you know there's no guarantee that we would do it, but sometimes we think about that letter later. And finally, of course, there's uh, a way for the public to submit petitions for rulemaking. Uh, those aren't that common, but they are public and they're posted on our website. Sure. 
So is the process different when rulemaking is in reaction to a specific issue or market development versus say like a long, longer term contemplation of change? Well, so there are there are a couple factors that could be starting points for rulemaking, and mm -hmm. the relevance of the particular factor is going to vary depending on what what rule it is. But you know, we all read the news, and so it's possible that there is a high profile event that might be given a higher priority. Um, but regardless of the starting point, once we actually start making the rule, the process is going to be closer to the same. Namely, there's going to be notice. There's going to be a comment period, then there's going to be adoption. Okay, thanks. Robert, I know that the SEC typically consults with various groups and committees to study an area of rulemaking when working on a proposal. Who are they in general? So as Nate mentioned, there's a lot of different ways that a, a rule can originate. Um, so there's a lot of potential differences. Uh, so depending on the context of the rulemaking, I've seen a variety of outreach to make sure we understand the issue and then it's actually appropriate for rulemaking. For example, I've read several releases that cited recommendations from the Investor Advisory Committee. Mm -hmm. Also participated in outreach to members of the industry, either on an individual basis or through trade groups to help us understand what changes to particular rules might be warranted and what alternatives exist. So when a study is done ahead of time by one of these groups, um, does staff wait on their findings or does the process happen simultaneously as added input to what it already, the staff may already have determined? Sure. So the posture will depend on the specific rulemaking. Mm -hmm. When making policy, we wanna consider all the reasonable alternatives. That's very important. So there's definitely some iteration. If a particular committee provides the germ of an idea that later becomes a rulemaking, and that would naturally come before a lot of the other work. In other cases, though, we might start with an idea, then talk with others to confirm or deny the hypothesis. We're always open to new ideas and new data, and we're always considering the alternatives. Okay. Nate, notwithstanding exceptional circumstances that might require a quicker pace, what would you say is the typical duration for rulemaking from inception to completion? Just ballpark. There's no, as you're, as you noted, there's not going to be a typical process because the rules vary so much. But you know, I can give you some color on the idea, which, which might help uh, understand what's going on behind the scenes. Sure. So you know, it's probably helpful to start with a brief refresher on the rulemaking process because I had forgotten most of admin law before joining the SEC. Mm -hmm. So before adopting a rule, we need to provide notice to the public about what we're intending to do. And then we need to give interested parties an opportunity to participate in the process. Okay. Um, typically, that is in the form of these written comment letters that, of course, we're talking about today. So, But what it means is there is a proposal, and then there's specific things that we know we're going to get comment on, and then an adoption. And each of those is going to take some time. So rules vary in scope, but some of our bigger releases might be hundreds of pages. And you know when something is that long, you know, of course, it took a long time to draft, but the fact it's so long might also mean that there was a lot of internal debate about exactly what we need to say to get where we need to go. So when you read a long release, just trust that it took us a long time to write. And then, of course, proposal is only the first step. Once we get comments, we have to read all of them. And when there are more comments, <laughs> uh, it takes longer to read them, especially when uh, some of them are like 100 pages long. Uh, once we've read them all, then we write another several hundred page release, which of course takes time. So, you know, it's not a short process generally. On the other hand, there are technical releases that we can just pump out. 
um, because they're going to be uncontroversial and there's not really a lot to consider. Sure. Well, Robert, sometimes rules don't happen following a proposal. What are some of the factors that might be involved to cause this? So, you know, there can be a number of factors involved in a decision like that. And it's going to be highly dependent on the individual proposal. And I can't speak to specific situations, of course. Okay. Um, but, you know, at, at a high level, you know, generally, you know, the things that would cause anyone to reconsider, you know, a particular policy or what they're doing could be relevant. So, for example, we could get feedback from commenters that cause us to reconsider whether a particular goal is just workable. Or in another example, um, there could just be other competing priorities that become more important. Sure. Um, I've got two questions here, if you all don't mind. Um, one uh, has asked, what are the best resources to monitor for upcoming and go live rule changes? Yeah, so our website, you know, we're required by law to, uh, to, to tell you about uh, what we're doing and we don't try to hide the ball. So if you look on our website, there's a tab called, I think, rulemaking index. And honestly, yes. I click on this dozens of times a day uh, mm -hmm. and it just provides the latest uh, summary of what we're working on. Yeah. Uh, separately, if you wanna know about things that are not yet proposed, but that we're thinking about proposing, you can look for what's called our, uh, what we call our Reg Flex agenda. It's published, mm -hmm. I think, pursuant to the Regulatory Flexibility yes. Act. That's a little harder to find, uh, but it's on OMB's website. Yes, and that recently came out. So another question here, um, and this is a side, we'll, we'll take this as a side from the comment process, which is what we're gonna focus on today. With regard to industry interaction prior to the release of rulemaking, so during policy creation phase, um, how can those of us in the industry engage with SEC staff? So the use case this uh, questioner has asked is, I've worked for technology service providers supporting financial service clients for the past decade and would love to provide perspective on the technology cyber side and trends we see across the, the client base. So I guess similar to the investment advisory group and others that may provide input um, to you, is there an ability for the public to sort of raise its hand and get involved in either your pre-rulemaking process or the rulemaking process itself, aside from comments? Either well, one of them. Yeah, uh, Nate, feel free to jump in. Um, you know, certainly during the, the rulemaking process, uh, you know, there are memos on, on the SEC website, on the comment website that I'll identify. Usually when we're having meetings, we have to put a memo up there and identify who's working on a rule. So by all means, you can reach out to those people and just say, hey, you know, I'd like to provide comments. I'd like to set up a meeting. And we're always, always open to receiving additional input, talking to more people. I think we find that the more people we can talk to and the more different places that they're situated in, uh, the better. Um, so that's, that's certainly um, always, always welcome. I don't know, Nate, if you want to give any suggestions on kind of prior to proposal, if you have any. Yeah, prior to proposal, it's tough. You know, we don't, uh, we're not really able to tell people what we plan to do before we do it um, beyond that pretty general statement uh, on the Red Flex agenda. But certainly if you see something you're interested in, I'm sure it's possible to, to email somebody. It just you might not be able to get a lot of information about what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the public comment part of rulemaking. 
The SEC asks questions in its proposals, sometimes hundreds of them. And in addition to answers to those, it anticipates public comments on the overall rule. Although there's a limited length of, to the official comment period for each rule, there is absolutely no limit or constraint on the comments that can be made by anyone. I've seen ones that are just a few words in length submitted via the standard online form, and I've seen and participated in letters that are well over 100 pages. Sorry about that, Nate. Um, so the SEC isn't Santa Claus. Nate, how can it possibly read every comment? Well, we, we do, uh, you know, <laughs> um, the short answer is that we read every comment because we have to read every comment and we care okay. what people are saying. Um, on releases that are going, that we think are going to get more comments, the teams are bigger, so that helps. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're divvying up the comment file uh, among several people. But then, you know, at my boss's level or, or my boss's boss's level, I am, often surprised by like the fact that they have read many of the comment letters just completely mm -hmm. um you know and they don't have a team that they can share it with so you know just trust that when you write something it is read and frequently read dozens of times well i know from speaking with you and robert before that you aggregate these comments as well. Um, can you explain the process of summarizing comments, especially for the commissioners? Because they can't read every single one. Yeah. And I mean, well, they're permitted to read them. You know, of course, the, of course. the comment file is it's posted on our website. Um, but if somebody asks for feedback on a, if somebody asks for a summary of views on a, on a particular topic to help their mm -hmm. deliberation about a particular okay. matter, we'll go ahead and summarize the views uh, related to that. So then I, I'm, I'm sorry to keep beating at this, but how do you, since there's so many different people perhaps in a team, particularly on some of the larger ones, how does it all come together? How do you, you aggregate what's been learned from the comments? Well, so, you know, there's, there's two ways to do it. Sometimes you can mm -hmm. ask staff to, to read every comment letter and then, you know, person okay. like Nate, you're responsible for, mm -hmm people commenting on, I don't know, policy proposal A, and Robert, you read every comment letter and look okay. at policy proposal B. Alternatively, you might just say, Nate, you read letters that came in before June 1st, and Robert, you read letters that came in after June 1st. There's several ways to divvy it up, and it's kind of, it's informal, and it would depend on the particular um, process or okay. on the particular rule. All right, thanks. AMA are delighted to host our annual conference dedicated to ESG this September the 8th in London. The full-day program will address the basics of ESG integration, the latest development in investor demands, new trends and themes, and the regulatory updates the firms need to know about. This is a prime opportunity to network at the industry and to hear unparalleled insights from speakers about how to approach responsible investment techniques across a range of strategies. To register or to find out more, visit the AMA website. We hope to see you there. So Mike, you've been on the commenting side often and I'm always impressed with the time and the effort you've contributed as well as your carefully considered input. What drives you to do this? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think of engagement in the rulemaking process as a core responsibility for a compliance program. When, when you're thinking about the structure and resourcing of your compliance program, one of the most important inputs is what the current and forthcoming regulatory landscape is. Whenever your regulators talk to you, you really need to understand what they're saying. And that information can come from a number of places. It can come from risk alerts, enforcement actions, press statements, and then of course, rule proposals. And in some ways, rule proposals are even more important than other types of communications because they're forward looking. Risk alerts or enforcement are usually backward looking, reactive things for, for things that uh, exam or enforcement staff found problematic. But rule proposals are different. They're about the way a framework, a regulatory framework might change. Mm -hmm. That provides important data points to consider when you're thinking about the structure and capabilities of your firm's compliance program. Well, as the end user of these rules, what's your process say for analyzing a rule, which you clearly do well in order to offer such thoughtful feedback? Yeah, so it, it's, um, it's easy to be reflexive sometimes about what a rule might mean. But I think it's important to be disciplined and, and think through at least three categories of potential impact. The first of which is primary impact of the registrant, in this case, an advisor. And that's pretty simple. It's will the rule change your business model? Are there things you do now you won't be able to do anymore? Are there additional operational burdens or costs that'll come from the rule? And this is a pretty simple exercise, but it's critical to imagine how a firm would operate if the proposal went into effect as drafted. Sure. But just as important, it's, it's uh, relevant to think about indirect impact to interested parties. Um, one of the most important elements to consider is how it might affect your clients or your investors. R remember that most of the securities laws are disclosure-oriented investor protection base. And if a given rulemaking might um, inadvertently uh, harm a registrant's clients in any way, that's really important for SEC staff to understand. So there's sort of two ways to, to go about this. The first is make sure you get your business partners engaged in the process. Um, the compliance folks are often very knowledgeable, um, but you're not going to be as knowledgeable as the folks on the ground day to day, whether it's your investment team or your investment relations team or otherwise. And that can help suss out potential unintended consequences. You know, if a given proposal interrupts or restricts the engagement model between a registrant or its clients, it's often an indication the proposal is either too broad or, or perhaps incompletely considered. And it's, it's really important for the folks at the SEC to understand if they could actually be inadvertently causing harm to those folks that they're seeking to protect. Sure. Nate and Robert, is this what you would hope to see? Yeah, absolutely. I just, especially in terms of what you think might be inadvertent consequences, those are things we really want to know about. Sure. All right. Well, Robert, obviously some people might not agree with the rule proposal. Sometimes their views can't be reconciled, and a commenter then is rejecting part or all of the proposal in their comments. Assuming the comments are professional, of course, how does the commission view these objections? So the reason we issue proposals and solicit comment letters is that we really want to know what interested persons think. We want them to have the opportunity to participate in the rulemaking process consider all the material that is presented to us as part of the rulemaking process. And I can tell you that, you know, people on the rulemaking staff really care about putting together the best rule they can. Mm -hmm. So 
In making a proposal, a proposal, the commission is putting forth a rule to address a particular problem usually. In my time at the commission, I've certainly read comment letters that object to the very premise of a proposal and their views are meaningful. We take that into consideration. Um, so if you object to the premise of what's being proposed, by all means, tell us and we will read it and we will consider it. But, you know, I think it, you should also consider providing constructive feedback. Even for instance, if you rejected the premise, you can still provide constructive feedback, say, you know, if nonetheless, if this is adopted, we have these issues to raise or, you know, just as an alternative. So, you know, for example, there might be concerns about specific consistency or interoperator interoperability issues for a particular proposal. And I think Mike kind of touched on some of that. Mm -hmm. um, and in certain cases, it might be hard for us on the staff to suss out on our own, you know, what would be worth mentioning. So it can help us kind of, you know, we're, when we're putting together a rule, we're trying to think about so many aspects, so many alternatives at any given time. And if you work in a particular area and you think, oh, this is gonna have a direct impact here, and maybe, you know, I just want to shine a light on this. Like that's really always welcome and it can change our thinking about something. Absolutely. So, you know, in general, I would just think about it more like an, you could almost think about it like a negotiation with one of your LPs. Like sometimes you just get your way, but often they have a specific policy that they want to implement. So you have to think about, you know, the reason you disagree and you see if there's a way you can both walk away at least somewhat happy. So Nate, just saying this won't work isn't going to get me very far, is it? Um, what might help the commission consider my objection? Yeah, that's that's correct. Saying this won't work, <laughs> I, I guess it, it could work. Um, you know, if we just read your letter and we're we're like, you're right. Um, but usually, uh, usually we need a little more to help. Probably. Us. And so specific factual information, uh, sort of as Robert was touching on, can be really mm -hmm. helpful if you can talk about a specific situation where a rule we proposed just wouldn't, wouldn't make the business work in a way that it doesn't sound like we thought about or maybe inadequately thought about, please let us know. You know, for example, and you know, reminder, these are made up, but is there a specific type of fund that it looks like we're just glossing over and we didn't think about? Or are there specific deadlines that can't be complied with maybe because a service provider is gonna to take too long to get the data you need? Mm -hmm. So specificity is gonna be really important um, as much as possible. You know, Often the depth of a comment letter is a lot more important than its breadth. And I think that can be important when you think about smaller firms that may not often participate in the process. You know, we don't need a 40-page comment letter. You're, you're welcome to write one, but if you write a two-page comment letter where you just say, this is a specific operational process that I do every day that is going to break because of a rule, mm -hmm. I really want to read that comment letter, and it shouldn't take very long to write. Um, in addition, Robert mentioned constructive feedback, and so if you identify something that's going to break, if you have an idea about how to fix it, that would also be really helpful. You know, if you think that we probably didn't mean to address it at all, just suggest an exemption. Alternatively, if it looks like we might still want to regulate that, but in a different way, perhaps suggest a way that, that we could make the rule work for your specific cir uh, circumstance. Okay. 
Um, and a reminder, attendees, you are welcome to ask questions. I'll, I'll work them in here. Um, Mike, there have been instances where we've objected to elements of a proposal and provided this feedback in our comments. When we spoke ahead of this session, you highlighted a recent example that appears to have led to a much improved final rule, the way Nate just described. Could you give some detail? Yeah, it, it definitely has happened where the comment process has resulted in important changes. And I, I think the recent marketing rule proposal is a good example in my view of strong process. And in particular, I don't think there was a formal ANPRM or advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, but it was, it was pretty clear the staff did some initial diligence with industry, uh, with members of the allocator community before publishing a rule proposal. And there was very detailed rule proposal. There was lots of explanatory color. There was a lot of questions that mm -hmm. were posed. And there was a good amount of lead time for the industry to wrap its head around it and submit comments, which many of us did. There were lots of industry groups and other participants that put in thoughtful comment letters. I think um, Amos was more than 40 pages uh, yeah. last time, but it was a pretty, um, pretty important proposal. It was the first time the marketing uh, mm -hmm. context has been addressed since the Kennedy administration. Yeah. And that was followed importantly with discussions with commissioners and staff about those comment letters in different areas. And if you, if you look at the outcome, certainly no rule could be perfect, but there were clearly changes in the final rule that address concerns during the comment period that made the final rule better. And so Nathan mentioned the importance of specificity. One of the things that came up in conversations following um, comment letters was disclosure obligations for hypothetical performance. Right. And the original proposal raised um, some significant concerns among advisors about the need to disclose proprietary information if you show hypothetical performance. And the industry did a good job highlighting that if this stayed in the final rule, it would actually harm investors because advisors aren't going to give away their secret sauce in the context of disclosures. And what that'll result in is less information making its way to investors than more, which is contrary to the policy goals of the rule in the first place. So I think it's a good example of the comment process helping to suss out an unintended consequence. In this case, something that would have been harmful for investors. And then the, the commission recognizing and addressing that in the final rule. Fair enough. Um, I'll ask a question here that comes up pretty often to me and actually came up a couple of days ago. In terms of comments or disagreement in uh, the comments, um, one that uh, the industry often is tempted to put forward is the cost of a proposal if it comes through. How strong or weak is that argument, understanding that there's going to be a cost to just about everything? You know, I think it's right to note that there is a cost to just about everything. And you have to be conscious of that when you write the comment letter. But if you're able to provide specific examples, potentially with specific numbers, uh, it can definitely inform our analysis. You know, we, okay. we have a broader mandate than simply just somebody's cost. You know, we also have to think yes. about benefits uh, to investors, to the markets, but cost does matter. Okay, no, I appreciate that. It is a question that comes up pretty often. If I may, Susan, just on cost, one of the things important for um, practitioners to think through is there's a difference in cost and operational burden if you were to build something from scratch than if you are to have it fit within the operational processes that you already maintain. 
And so it's important to think about not just how you do it if you could start from scratch, but how it'll fit together. And in those areas, costs can actually scale in a way that doesn't seem linear. And it's another example of something that might not have been sort of top of mind during the rule proposal drafting process. That's a great point. Um, Mike, in, in terms of the comment process, do you find that it's helpful to comment as part of a group where there might be differing views to yours and you need to reach a consensus in the, the overall letter? Yeah, you know, it's, it's always a balance. Um, investment management's a diverse industry. We have lots of different types of firms, strategies, sizes, client bases. But one area of commonalities, we're all trying to do the best we can for our clients and investors. And typically, particularly given the types of investor protection rules that the commission often writes, there's a clear enough alignment for industry associations like AMA to reach a consensus among members that can result in a comment letter process that advocates for the industry well. But of course, just like um, Nathan and Robert have been mentioning, that is something that is very facts and circumstances specific. Of course. Well, here's an obvious question and also comes up regularly from members. Would you ever consider commenting independently? So your firm directly instead of as part of a group? Sure, but we'd have to have some sort of differentiated insight that wasn't raised by the associations about something that really matters for us. You know, okay. typically that's not necessary, but you know, never say never. We'd, we'd certainly want to retain the ability to provide our views, particularly among things that would matter for interested parties, such as our clients. If uh, trade associations aren't able to do that well, we'd certainly consider it. Okay, well, the reason I ask this is because the obvious question, there's this old spooky myth, myth out there about if you approach the SEC directly, the SEC then is going to examine you, uh, have concerns, so on and so forth. Nate, Robert, what do you have to add? I have never seen that. Um, yeah. I, please submit a comment. Uh, we're not going <laughs> to retaliate. Okay. Well, would it raise concerns perhaps about a business practice if somebody's asking? I, I mean, if you ask if if you ask if fraud is legal, we're going to have some questions. But I think most people are commenting in good faith, and we're regulating in good faith. And I, I completely understand. You know, of course, there's going to be concerns about revealing sensitive information. But if you're concerned about that, I guess maybe talk to outside counsel first. But we generally pardon me, we genuinely care what people have to say about the rules we propose. And I don't think there's any appetite on the rulemaking staff to retaliate against someone. And I don't really think it's allowed even if there were appetite. Well, the, the fear is there, but this would go into that category of myths. Um, Robert, um, how, do you, how do you feel about that? You used to be on the other side in, in private practice. Yeah, so I, I certainly understand why people would be tentative and cautious about it, but I, I echo what Nate said. I've never seen, you know, our response to comment be like, oh, well, you know, this is surprising to us. I mean, most of the time it's just not even surprising because we've thought through so many bad actor and kind of worst case scenarios. We were putting a rule together that um, I, I frankly would be it would be new to me if we were surprised by someone saying something about something we'd already spent so much time putting together a 300 page rule about. Um, so I understand the caution, but you know, I think one theme of this 
presentation is that we're always open to additional input, always you know, eager for more data, more input, and to be able to consider the, the issues from every angle. So then the myth of, hey, if I put in a comment to the SEC or even contact them to try to speak to them, they are going to pick up the phone and ring the folks in exams and say, hey, you want to talk to this ABC company? Um, I, we're just going to put that one to bed, correct? Yeah, Fantastic. Yeah, Honestly, it is, it is a driving force at times behind people not approaching the commission. So in any case, um, so Robert, Comment periods, they do have a, a defined period. When the comment period ends, does the opportunity to provide input end as well? Absolutely not. Um, we are always open to receiving further input and data. Um, I can speak for myself, but I think this is kind of broadly true of the rulemaking teams is that we want to feel like we've considered every issue from every angle possible. Um, everything that's been raised, we've thought through and considered and tried to figure it out how it interacts with the other things we're considering. So absolutely, if the comment period is over, um, but you have a point you want to explain further, or you have, you know, say you have some additional data, by all means, submit it or reach out to a member of the rulemaking staff and offer to set up a meeting and talk through it. Um, I can't, again, you know, I, I can't think of a single instance where we turn someone down who is, you know, reaching out to provide further input. Okay. Well, what might consider what might cause the SEC to consider extending or reopening a comment period, which they do sometimes? Sure. So, you know, I think tying back to some of the things we were talking about a bit earlier, you know, rules are very different. The processes they can take are different in terms of, you know, why they were started and um, what ends up getting adopted. So it's hard to answer that kind of precisely. Okay. There's, there's not one size fits all answer. Um, and, you know, just to emphasize, I'm not talking about any specific rule, of course. Uh, but like as an example, we might reopen a comment period if we believe commenters would benefit from additional opportunity to collect information or respond. Mm -hmm. um, and also add that in certain cases, when comments are reopened, the release for the reopening will request comment on specific questions or topics. Mm -hmm. So in that case, you know, we strongly recommend addressing those specific areas because it indicates it's something we're, you know, really mulling. So then drawing a line here, um, we're going from, you're probably receiving comments, reading them, and perhaps understanding that the rule could benefit from additional comments. Would that be a correct statement? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, again, it, it's hard to... to to say it happens the same way every time. And it's really, I think, just more driven um, in, in the particular example I gave, which was not, again, about any specific rule, but you know, thinking there'd be more, it'd be helpful to have more time for people to provide data or input. Um, you know, it could be partially in response to comments we received, either through letters or in meetings, or it could be a sense just of the, the kind of comments we're getting back and if they're addressing the things um, you know, we, we were specifically hoping they would address. So, um, there can be a lot of different ways that we can kind of come to that conclusion. Okay. Mike, do you feel that the comment process is effective? Certainly the outcome may not be what we always hope for, but how do you feel the comment process could be improved, for example, to benefit both sides? Yeah, you know, it, it certainly can be. And there's examples, as we highlighted before, of, of when it is. Of course, in some ways, it is outcome specific. 
Sure. Um, but I, I think the thing I'd highlight is change is hard. The SEC has a challenging and really important job to do. Um, and, you know, for, from my perspective, um, good processes are really important. And some of the hallmarks of good process is time and engagement for folks to be able to engage and raise issues. Um, and so making sure that all impacted parties um, can, can, you know, think through what the issues might be and raise their views to the commission. So the commission can have time to think through them and iterate, uh, you know, as appropriate is really important. And, you know, with good process, typically you have a better chance at good outcomes. Nate, flipping that around, how do you think commenters could improve on the effectiveness of their comments? You mentioned specificity, for example. What about data? If they don't have time, for example, to conduct analysis in a short window, is that something you'd want to see maybe as a follow-on to a letter or a comment? Yeah, I definitely love data. Um, uh, you know, I I don't think there's anything specific that I can say about submitting information after a comment period closes, but definitely if some sort of survey or data gathering process is ongoing at the conclusion of a comment period, feel free to raise it. And, you know, our, our names are all in, the names of everybody who's worked on a rule are at the front of the release and feel free to contact one or more of us and say, hey, I have this additional data. Do you want to set up a meeting to discuss it? That's really helpful for us to hear. We do. Um, Robert, any, any views there? No, I, you know, I think, I think Nate summed it up and I think my previous response also kind of got at it too. So I guess the reason that I asked that question is on some of the more involved rule proposals, there is the, the intent or, or the interest in doing say um, a poll of investors or gathering additional data, even on costs, for example, where it may not be something which is a short say two week process. Plus as, as um, Mike, has indicated in working with a group, there is a fair amount of back and forth and involvement. We do, we have many calls before we come up with final set of comments to submit. So this process takes time. The study itself, um, whether it's polling investors or um, speaking to our, our members to get an overall view and compile some data, um, maybe it won't fit in a window. Um, it might cause some not to proceed with that kind of analysis. If I were to tell you in a comment letter that we are currently conducting a study, does that help? Or it's just, you know, once the window closes, there are no guarantees as to whether or not that's going to be received. Sorry yeah, to put you on the spot. Yeah. I, I definitely would emphasize that we can't make any specific promise is about a way we'd consider any comment letter. But by all means, yeah, tell us if something is taking more time and you think you need more time to respond. Uh, you know, though I can't guarantee any particular outcome, we definitely want to hear, we want to hear information. And it is important to us to know if there isn't enough time. At okay. the same time, you know, I we, Robert and I both worked in private practice and we're aware that things can move quickly when they need to. So I would hope that, uh, you know, commenters do treat this as important because we think it's important. We do the best we can. Um, 
Well, any final points, um, Mike, any advice you'd have for, for folks who are out there that maybe have not commented before, but might have really wanted to? Well, there, there's um, you know, one, one of the themes from Nathan and Robert's um, comments is that it's really important to get your views out there, whether that's via an association or otherwise. And, and even if you feel like you missed the boat on um, the proposals that have come down the pipe, first of all, you probably aren't going to run out of opportunities. The RegFlex agenda that Nathan mentioned has a variety of things on it, so I'd stay tuned yes. for that. But it's also an opportunity for you to think through what your compliance program structure and resourcing might look like going forward, because a number of these are very likely um, to move forward into final rule in the coming months. Yeah, and you know, I've seen the SEC publish uh, not only FAQs for some of the longer, more involved roles, but have a dedicated inbox for input um, where, where the public can ask questions during implementation. Same thing applies in terms of being able to ask the commission questions uh, in, and not have, a, you know, sort of a, a um, target on your back. Um, is that, that would be correct. Yes, Nate, Robert? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Please ask questions. Okay. All right. Well, any final comments or best practice suggestions you might have for attendees, uh, Nate and Robert? Either one of you. Um, you know, I like what Mike said a lot about how important it is to get your views out there and how important that is for us. And we're always, you know, in certain cases we have to go when we're, we think there might be an issue in a particular niche but we didn't receive comments on it. And then we have to go and kind of find ourselves, like it would just work better for everyone if we had received comments from, um, from that specific area. So I think Mike put it really nicely. And like to emphasize that that can be a short comment letter. It can be one or two pages. You don't need to write a treatise just to tell us about one particular <laughs> issue. Indeed. If there are any additional questions from uh, the audience, please bring them forward. All right, well, um, seeing that there are no further comments, I'm going to thank each of you for your time today. It's uh, Nate, Robert, Mike, this has been incredibly helpful. And um, I thank attendees for joining. A replay will be available um, soon. And uh, please check in with, with AMA on its website for further programming as it comes up. If you have any questions that you did not ask during the session or you're watching this thereafter and wish to bring a question forward, please contact me, nesrose at ama.org. Thanks again, guys, for your time today. And thank you, everyone, for attending. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>